0: Hey, welcome to another episode of The Scrum. I'm Adam Riley. I'm joined, as I usually am, by my colleague Peter Kadzis. Peter, hello. Hey there. And today we're doing something a little bit different. Ordinarily, we focus on politics here, generally local politics, sometimes with a smattering of national. But today we're going to take a page out of Emily Rooney's book and talk about media matters. We're doing that because Dan Kennedy, who Peter and I both worked with at the Boston Phoenix, both continue to work with here at WGBH News has a brand-new book called The Return of the Moguls, how Jeff Bezos and John Henry are remaking newspapers for the 21st century. And Dan Kennedy has been kind enough to join us. Dan, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me, Adam. By the way, I meant to uh, mention in my introduction of your book that you've got some pretty generous assessments in the blurbs on the back. Bob Schieffer, CBS news legend, calls your book timely and much needed. Ken Auletta, who I know from the pages of The New Yorker, calls your book important and scrupulously reported. So congrats on those characterizations. Thank you very
1: much. I appreciate it. I call his book damn good. Uh, Peter, I wish you'd said that earlier. We would have gotten you on the back cover. Okay. (laughs) Damn
0: good. All right, so Dan Kennedy, let me start by asking you, how does the book that you ended up writing differ from the book that you originally
1: thought you were going to be writing? Well, I would say that when this came together in the summer of 2013, Uh, right around the time that Jeff Bezos bought the Washington Post and John Henry bought the Boston Globe, I didn't necessarily have an idea of what I was going to do except follow these two very wealthy newspaper owners and see what they could come up with. And I was also tracking uh, Aaron Kushner, who had purchased the Orange County Register in Southern California Who was getting a lot of praise for what he was doing at the time. And what I finally realized was that all three of these moguls had come on the scene at almost the exact moment that we were giving up on the idea that newspapers online could exist as free advertiser supported vehicles. All three of them were faced with the task of how to get their readers to pay for the news. And they've all approached it in different ways. Let's focus more on
0: The Globe, since they're our local paper of record, and The Post, since, among other things, they're a fascinating story because they're owned by the owner of Amazon, but they also have the former Globe editor, Marty Baron, at the helm. Right. My reading of your analysis is that you are not hopeless, but also not overly optimistic. You end up concluding society needs newspapers to function the way it ought to, but there is no guarantee that we're going to continue to have the newspapers we need because there's no guarantee that people will be able to come up with a business model that works
1: for the information age that we're in. Is that a fair paraphrase? I I think that's a very fair paraphrase, and I think that's especially true Of the large regional newspapers like the Boston Globe, Uh, Jeff Bezos may have found his way to a successful formula, but I think it's unique for something that is national in scope. Uh, There's nothing more difficult than doing a regional newspaper at the moment. Okay, so let's take the Globe up top. You also say that the
0: Post and the Globe offer both positive and negative lessons for people who are looking for ways that newspapers can survive moving forward and thrive.
1: I think that John Henry's ownership of the globe has really been marked by experimentation, throwing things against the wall and seeing what will stick. And so what we've seen is uh, early on launching free standalone websites to cover specialized topics like the Catholic Church with Crux, like the innovation economy with Data Boston, health and life sciences with Stat, Crux and Beta Boston did not work out, although Crux continues to exist under different ownership. Stat has done fairly well, but it's moving away from the free model and more and more embracing paid content. Some of the enlarged print sections that The Globe debuted early on have had a very mixed record. Unfortunately, we know that attempts that they made to improve their print distribution and uh, improve the costs associated with their printing by moving to a new plant in Taunton have really not worked out well at all, although I think they may still work out in the future. There's been one big success that the globe has enjoyed and i think this is really the key to whether they're going to become sustainable or not they charge more than just about anybody for a digital subscription it's thirty dollars a month once all the discounts have expired and they've succeeded with that they're expected to hit the hundred thousand mark by the end of june and they have said that if they can get to two hundred thousand they start to look like a sustainable business So why do you say they've succeeded if they are not
0: even quite halfway to where they need to get to be sustainable? What makes that success?
1: Well, we're still in the very early stages of trying to get people to pay for digital uh, newspapers. Closing in on 100,000 may not sound like an awful lot, given that a lot of us remember when they used to sell 500,000 print papers a day. On the other hand, 100000 is more than any other regional paper in the country, except the Los Angeles Times, which serves a much bigger area and charges a lot less. So they're actually doing very well on the digital front, and they're really kind of a model for the rest of the business. Right.
2: I mean, I think Henry came in with far more confidence in himself than he found out was deserved. I mean, they've had two real debacles. One, the home delivery debacle, which was so frustrating that I, who've been reading the Globe ever since I was a little boy, almost canceled my subscription just because I didn't want the satisfaction of them having me as a subscriber. Luckily, my newspaper all of a sudden showed up that day. It's worth mentioning, by the way, you also used to work at the Globe. Yeah. And the other is the printing presses. They bought a set of presses that were suited for tabloids, which they were told could be converted to broadsheets. But it wasn't as easy as they thought. What are those two issues indicative of in terms of larger challenges they
1: might face? Very smart strategies and very poor execution. I don't know that we could say that this is endemic to the Henry ownership, but those are two really big issues. And in each case, you could have made a very strong case that, boy, this is the right thing to do. This is going to save money. This is going to put them on a good path. And then the execution was totally lacking. The distribution problem was somewhat easy to solve. All you had to do was go back to the previous distributor and then try to reassemble the distribution network that had been broken apart. The printing situation has gotten a lot better, but it's not solved, and we saw that just last week uh, the new owner of the Boston Herald, Digital First Media, moved the Herald from the Globe to the Providence Journal. And if you look at the statement that came out of the Globe, it was almost like, thank God, that's one less thing for us to screw up.
0: (laughs) Do you think that Peter is right, Dan Kennedy, that John Henry came in with confidence that proved to be misplaced?
1: Yes. Uh, And I think that this goes part and parcel with being one of these wealthy newspaper owners. I think that you could look at case after case after case, Aaron Kushner in Orange County, Brian Tierney at the Philadelphia Inquirer, they all come into it thinking that, you know, the only thing that's wrong with the newspaper business is that they haven't had me running things. I'm going to know how to straighten this out. And they've all found out that it's a much more difficult problem than they had realized, With the sole exception of Jeff Bezos, nothing at the Washington Post has happened to diminish his confidence in himself one little bit. Well,
2: of course, he had the advantage of buying it with Marty Baron as editor. That's right. And Marty Baron is arguably, or perhaps agreed upon, as the
1: best newspaper editor in the nation. Oh, absolutely. Marty Baron is absolutely terrific. But at the same time, you would have to say that um, the Boston Globe and the Orange County Register, their problems have not had anything to do with journalism. Right. And in fact, Brian McGrory's been an excellent editor of the Globe, in my opinion. I'm
0: glad you brought up McGrory, because I wanted to ask you, before we get to the post, which we should spend a chunk of time on, what has McGrory done as editor, or what has the Globe done editorially under his watch that's different than the way they did business
1: under Marty Baron? Even though Baron presided over a lot of shrinkage at the Globe, McGrory has had to preside over more shrinkage still, and I think he's had to fundamentally rethink the way the Globe handles the basics of local and regional coverage. I think he's done this in a couple of ways. One of them is more tone than anything. I think the paper as a whole is suffused with more voice and attitude than it had under Marty Baron. And you're more likely to encounter something on the front page that's print edition talk for you kids um, (laughs) that's only there because it's a good read. You'd say, well, this isn't news. What is it? Well, it's something that we think people will enjoy reading.
2: Well, yeah. I mean, I'd chip in as a longtime reader and say I I was somewhat skeptical when I heard they were going to make the switch from paper of record to, is it paper of interest? They
1: call it the paper of interest, yes. Paper
2: of interest. Well, I think they've done it successfully. And as, as, as someone, one of the things I do during my day job at WGBH is follow the state house and city hall. Um, they do a darn good job of picking their shots instead of being there all the time.
1: That's right. It seems like there's always a worthwhile enterprise piece in the pipeline, and so I give him a lot of credit for that. The other thing he has done, he's presided over a reorganization of the newsroom built around the idea that, well, we're smaller now. How can we do what we do with fewer resources and maybe... Let some things go and reemphasize other things. It's a little bit hard to put my finger on this, but I'll identify one thing. Sean Murphy's consumer column. Sean Murphy is a fine journalist. He's been at the Globe for a long time. You look back at the last few years and you'd say, well, what has Sean Murphy done that we remember? I I think he was behind the scenes. Now he writes this consumer column. It's one of the most talked about things in Boston. I think that's a really successful way of not only doing good journalism, but also getting people talking about your journalism.
2: Well, The Globe these days is very much about impact. Take Yvonne Abraham. Yes, I mean, yes. who who at the moment is, you know, uh, exhibit A during the Olympics, you know, Shirley's business column. Shirley Leong. No one could deny the impact that Shirley had. That's right. And it's sort of interesting that M- Marty Baron was, I think, a little bit afraid of those voices. And I suspect because he wasn't a Bostonian and he didn't know
1: how to read them. That's right. Although I think Marty moved more in that direction as time went on. And I think the Washington Post has more voice than the Globe did when Barron was running it. True. Well,
0: the Washington Post also, I believe, has more voice than what has become its primary competition as far as national newspapers go, which is the New York Times. At least that's been my read, that in the Trump era, the Times has worked really hard to hew to sort of a classic... Uh, view-from-nowhere approach to the news, making sure that both sides are presented on any given story, giving both sides equal weight, whereas The Post, Dan, tell me if I'm wrong here, but it seems to me like it has been much voicier than The Times when it comes to covering national politics in this very unusual moment, and as a result has been much more readable day in, day out.
1: Oh, I I agree completely. I mean, I think that even though The Times has been doing some... Very tough and important reporting on the Trump administration. Uh, fundamentally, they perpetuate the fiction that we're covering a normal presidency here, <laughs> and and it it drives me crazy. Well, I uh, have
2: to say, I I enjoy reading the Twitter feeds of the Times reporters more than I enjoy reading their stories.
1: Well, there you go, there you go, and I think the Post has been absolutely fierce in its coverage of national politics during the Trump years. Of course, they've got their their goth slogan, democracy dies in <laughs> darkness. <laughs> yeah. And uh, I, I mean, it's, it's, I think it's really resonated with people. And it also fits in with what has been Jeff Bezos's fundamental business insight. And that is the Washington Post was always more like a larger version of the globe than it was like the New York Times. Bezos came in and he said, we are now a national news organization. We're not going to try to distribute the print edition nationally. We're going to try to get as large an audience as we possibly can and then go about converting some small share of that audience into paying customers. And this illustrates a big difference between a national news organization, and a regional news organization because the Post is able to get small amounts of money from many people. The Globe is stuck with getting large amounts of money from a smaller universe of people, and that's a harder sell. It's probably worth reminding people of some of the fears that were attached to
0: Jeff Bezos's impending stewardship of the Post when he bought the paper because he has really exceeded the expectations the people had for him, right? I mean, there was concern that he would advance sort of a techno-libertarian point of view editorially in The Globe's pages, that he would put Amazon off limits, but those big fears have not come to pass, right, Dan?
1: No, that really hasn't happened at all. Uh, Neither John Henry nor Jeff Bezos has involved himself in the operations of the newsrooms of their papers at all. Uh, John Henry has made his presence felt on the opinion pages of The Globe, which is not inappropriate. Uh, but Jeff Bezos hasn't even done that. Uh, they are still the same moderately liberal interventionist editorial page that they've always been, with column after column after column telling you that Trump still stinks. And they, they have covered Amazon critically, right, And Jeff have, Bezos' is urging. Certainly when Bezos was announced as the owner... Uh, they ran a scorching profile of their new owner. And uh, one of the reporters who worked on that, Kimberly Kindy, uh, gave me an interview in which she said that not only was she not punished for that, she's thrived. She won a Pulitzer Prize for her role in their uh, police shooting database that they put together a few years ago. Dan, before the
2: Internet came along, Newspapers used to thrive in the old days when people would go to college, they'd get a job, they'd most likely get married, they'd then buy a house, and then they'd have kids. And all of this would be taking place largely before they were 30 years old. Today, we have an environment where there's something called the post-college years, college loans and the scarcity of good jobs. People... You know, a working part-time. It's harder to start a career. The young people today are marrying later than ever. Housing is out
0: of their price range. Yeah, and you have people like me who are in their 40s who still haven't bought a house and are hoping to in the fairly near future. But yeah, 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 it's taking longer to happen. So people's
2: relationship to their immediate society, which was the very thing local papers thrived on, had changed. I yes. remember the day I bought a house or the week I bought a house, I began looking at things differently. All of a sudden, you're paying your taxes. You're thinking about trash pickup. You just have a, a much more boring but different orientation. How is this going to impact the news business?
1: Oh, I think it's having a huge impact on the news business. Um I think that the younger generations, which is anybody younger than I am, um, <laughs> I like are, are very engaged with the news, but much more on a national and international level. It's, it's hard to get them interested in local and regional news. In my last book, The Wired City, I interviewed Mark Oppenheimer, who is a journalist who writes a religion column for the New York Times. And uh, he told me that he thought the lack of a sense of place among the younger generations was killing newspapers because everybody was going to uh, New York or Silicon Valley or Washington and a couple <laughs> other places. And after they got out of college, they weren't going back to where they came from to take their place in the community where local news really mattered to them. So I would add that to all the factors that you mentioned as a real challenge. I should say newspapers per household have been dropping since the 1920s. Uh, Since the 1950s, we've been seeing second and third papers in cities going out of business. So there's nothing new about this. The downward trend has never stopped either. It's been a continuing decline for many decades.
0: You also delve in the book into the possibility that the different habits of thought that have been generated by the rise of Facebook and Twitter and the iPhone and the Internet and the shorter attention span, among other things, that it's created in almost all of us, myself definitely included— That there may end up not being a psychological market in the future for the sort of journalism that we have considered
1: most important for a really long time, right? You know, I I think that what studies have shown is that people still like in-depth, long stories if it catches their attention. They haven't given up on that. What they are giving up on is the idea of the news as some sort of an aggregated product that they need to keep up with on a daily basis. They'll skip around and see a lot of short things, and then something really long might capture their attention, and they will read it, but there is a lack of intent to it. You know, the people who read the New York Times and read the
2: Washington Post and read the Wall Street Journal are more affluent, more educated, uh, more engaged than people who don't. Publications like The Economist, relatively small but very affluent, this mirrors the great rise of economic inequality. And what goes along with economic inequality is educational inequality or educational achievement.
1: I I would argue that um, media such as the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal were always restricted to an elite. But there was a time when, if you live in Boston, everybody was reading The Globe or The Herald or the Boston Post, or whatever they were choosing to read. And those were all quality news sources, and there was a common conversation, and everybody was up on that news. Now, even reading something like the Boston Globe has become an elite activity, and people who are not as well-educated or as affluent or on the wrong side of income inequality are not reading that. What have you heard from
0: the people who you spoke with for this book since it came out? Has anyone excoriated you, telling you, you know, you got their point of view totally wrong? Or conversely, have you gotten any praise from principals at uh, any of the papers that you talk about?
1: Well, it's interesting. I mean, you know, you'd certainly like to see that a few people felt zinged, but so far the feedback has been pretty good. Some of the Washington Post material was in a paper I did for the Shorenstein Center at Harvard, And so people at the Washington Post already had a sense of what was coming, and the reaction to that generally seemed to be pretty good. Have you heard from the Henrys yet? Uh, You know, I did uh, email John Henry and ask him to come to a book party we were having, and I thought, well, this will be his chance to unload on me if he wants to, but all he said was, well, I might come. He, he didn't, but he didn't well, say anything he, negative either. Y- you were pretty kind, not soft, but there's,
0: I, I would say, no snark in the book. No, I tried to leave the snark out of it. All right, let's say that John Henry did get in touch with you, or maybe Linda Pazuti Henry, uh, in the next few days and say, you know, Dan, we would love to get your counsel on what we should do moving forward, because we thought your analysis in The Return of the Moguls was so spot on. What would you tell them?
1: This may sound kind of boring, but it would be the very first thing I would tell them. You've got to do something about mobile. One of the reasons that The Washington Post has done so well, aside from the journalism, is that its digital products are a pleasure to use on phones, on tablets. I think The Globe's website, is pretty good on a computer, but it gives you a lousy experience on a phone, especially if you don't have a good, strong Internet connection. I think that the way we interact with the news on our phones has become absolutely crucial to the future of any news organization. I remember interviewing Katie Kingsbury when she was the managing editor for Digital at The Globe, and this was more than two years ago now. And she said, oh, I'm evaluating a bunch of different platforms right now. We hope to have something uh, later next year. Well, next year came and went. She's now at the New York Times, and there's still no mobile product.
0: All right, so that would top your list. Uh, What would number two be?
1: You know, the one thing that I think might be my number two is I would try to have some special online features that really aren't available in print. The problem with that is the print subscribers pay so much more than the digital subscribers. You don't really want to deprive them of anything. You look at the new editorial that they've done on gun control, the wraparound around the print edition. Yep. Digitally, it is just absolutely phenomenal, the way they have uh, interactive data presentations, tweet at your representative. Uh, That's really good stuff, and I would just say they'd hate to hear this because it's so labor-intensive, but they need more.
0: All right. That is going to do it for this installment of The Scrum. We've been talking with Dan Kennedy. He's a professor at Northeastern University a contributor to WGBH News and the author of the new book, The Return of the Moguls, How Jeff Bezos and John Henry Are Remaking Newspapers for the 21st Century. Dan, congrats on the book, and thanks for being here. Thank you, Adam. Thanks for coming by.
2: And as I said, it's a good book.
0: As always, thanks to my colleague Peter Kadzis for joining me for this. Peter, much appreciated.
2: That's big of you, Adam.
0: And thanks to all of you who have taken the time to listen. You can find back episodes of the scrum at blogs.com. WGBHNews.org. We'd love it if you subscribed, if you haven't already, at Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Adam Riley. The Scrum is a production of WGBH News.